This week, Reorg analyzes electricity seller claims against ERCOT, Comscope considers spinoff to deal with semiconductor shortage, Viasat acquires Inmarsat, and Carlson Wagon that looks to confirm one day Chapter 11. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest developments in high-yield distress debt and bankruptcy. I'm David Zupkis. Julian Ballon is out today, but we'll be back next week. For this week's deep dive in keeping with the ongoing drama around China Evergrande Group, we have a replay from our October webinar where Reorg hosts a panel discussion of the latest developments around mechanisms for enforcing keep-all deeds for offshore notes, implications for creditors, and other considerations. It's Friday, November 12th. Eight months after winter storm Yuri caused prices to dramatically increase in Texas electricity market, Grid Operator and Clearinghouse of the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, or ERCOT, is still trying to recover the nearly $3 billion of short pay, amounts invoiced by ERCOT to power purchasers that remain unpaid, that arose during the storm. Because ERCOT stands in the middle of all transactions in the ERCOT market, where it's the sole buyer to each seller and the sole seller to each buyer, the money short payer power purchasers owe ERCOT is down the line ultimately owed by ERCOT to power sellers, the market participants who generated and sold energy during the storm. This week, REERG undertook an analysis of the latter side of this dynamic, electricity seller claims that would be collectible through ERCOT. Such claims have been marketed in the secondary market, but their payout is subject to multiple contingencies regarding recovery sources and timing. The REORG piece analyzed various sources of recovery for such claims and, in particular, potential impacts on those recoveries if Brazos Electric Power Cooperative is able to reduce the amount it owes ERCOT in its ongoing bankruptcy. Indeed, Brazos represents the single largest source for incremental recovery on electricity seller claims, about 63.7% of the outstanding short pay due to ERCOT. If ERCOT does not recover in full from Brazos, that could raise a host of issues for parties still waiting to collect from ERCOT. ERCOT has said that it has no direct liability for such claims, and a Brazos claim reduction could trigger ERCOT efforts to collect the reduced amount from remaining market participants via its default uplift process or incentivize other short payers such as Rayburn County Electric Cooperative, who owes $637.3 million to ERCOT, to consider filing for Chapter 11 in a bid to receive a similar reduction in its short pay to ERCOT. It remains unclear whether the differential between ERCOT's proof of claim against Brazos and a future reduced allowed claim in the bankruptcy would be charged to remaining market participants by ERCOT through its default uplift invoice process. As explained by ERCOT in a recent motion filed in bankruptcy court, governing ERCOT protocols require that when a market participant such as Brazos fails to pay what it owes, ERCOT must collect that default from the remaining participants in the market via the default uplift process. If you're interested in accessing REORG's in-depth coverage of Brazos and the fallout from Storm Uri, please reach out to a REORG sales representative. REORG initiated coverage this week on Comscope, a provider of connectivity solutions for the communications industry. The Hickory, North Carolina-based company may face difficulties completing the planned spinoff of its home networks business as its financial results have been battered by the semiconductor shortage, higher raw materials, and supply chain challenges, according to CEO Chuck Treadway. In April, Comscope announced plans to spin off its home networks business, which provides consumer-oriented products as a new publicly traded company. Comscope said that it expected the transaction, which would be in the form of a distribution to existing shareholders, to be completed by the end of the first quarter of 2022. The spinoff is being undertaken as a part of an initiative to reduce operating costs throughout the company, Comscope said in a press release. To the extent the spinoff remains structured as a distribution to shareholders, Comscope will need to have sufficient dividend capacity under its debt documents. 
Most recently, the company's third quarter results were pummeled by macro headwinds. Non-GAAP-adjusted EBITDA fell 24.2% year-over-year to $259.1 million in the third quarter, as net sales fell 3%. A recent press release cited ongoing challenges associated with the global supply chain disruption, increased costs of materials and freight, and semiconductor chip shortage occurring across the industry and broader economy. The company added that it expects these significant headwinds to persist in the near term. Viasat announced Monday that it would acquire Inmarsat for an enterprise value of $7.35 billion. Inmarsat shareholders would receive $850 million in cash and about 46.4 million shares of Viasat common stock valued at $3.1 billion based on the $67 per share closing price of Viasat stock on November 5th. VSS proposed acquisition values Immersat at roughly 10 times projected 2021 adjusted EBITDA or 9 times pro forma projected EBITDA. Through the merger, VSL will increase its exposure to the growing mobility sector in an industry trend evidenced by Intelsat's December 2020 acquisition of GoGo's commercial aviation business and Telesat's planned launch of its Lightspeed Constellation project, which aims to vertically target the terrestrial aviation, maritime, and government markets. Intelsat and Telesat have historically focused services on television broadcast and media and market applications that have been adversely affected in recent years by significant competition from cheaper and faster alternatives. Neither Viasat nor Inmarsat appear significantly opposed to broadcast and media markets. Inmarsat has focused primarily on mobility satellite services, which have benefited in recent years from growth in maritime digitalization, more connected aircraft, and higher passenger in-flight connectivity take-up. On Thursday, Carlson Travel Inc., doing business as Carlson Wagonlet Travel, or CWT, a Helensky Finland-based business-to-business for employees travel management company, commenced Chapter 11 proceedings in the bankruptcy court for the Southern District of Texas, kicking off their strategy of seeking expedited confirmation of their prepackaged plan. The debtors targeted a one-day bankruptcy, and at the first day hearing, Judge Marvin Isker indicated that he would confirm the prepackaged plan. The company said in a press release that the plan has the support of 100% of its bank group and holders of 90% of the company's outstanding secured debt. Specifically, according to the first declaration of CTI CEO Michelle McKinney, the debtors have the support of 100% of Class 3 revolving credit facility claims, approximately 95% of Class 4 new money notes claims, 90% of Class 5 new senior secured notes claims, 86% of Class 6 third lien notes claims, and 100% of the debtors' equity interests. The debtors have commitments for $350 million in equity capital through a fully backstop equity rights offering and $775 million of exit facilities, $625 million exit first lien debt, and $150 million exit revolving credit facility presumed to be undrawn in emergence, which would provide sufficient capital to fund distributions under the plan and the debtors' go-forward operations. The equity infusion exit facilities with the repayment or equitization of substantially all outstanding debt obligations would eliminate approximately half of CWT's existing approximately $1.6 billion of debt. Although the debtors anticipated filing their cases on November 7th, they delayed the filings after they discovered on November 3rd that holders of Class 7 euro-denominated subordinated notes were not solicited. Such holders received supplemental solicitation patches on November 5th with a supplemental opt-out deadline of December 9th. Even though, according to the debtors, such holders contracted away their rights to participate in the cases under an intercreditor agreement. Top of the stories this week included Bank of America sends save the date for senior notes and packaging sector. Judge Dorsey delivers complete victory to Malincrot debtors in Makeholt ruling. Hertz announces pricing of upsized public offering of common stock by selling stockholders. DOJ issues annual HSR report. Khan argues rising deal activity justifies reforms. Now here's Jim from Houston with the week ahead. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the week ahead, the last week before the Thanksgiving holiday. Monday, November 15th, earnings from the Wee Company, formerly WeWork, APX Group, and a continued confirmation hearing in Puerto Rico. 
Tuesday, November 16th, earnings from Aramark and Puerto Rico continues. Wednesday, November 17th, oral arguments in Stoneway Capital and Shopco and earnings from Macy's and Bath and Body Works. And that looks to be about it for the week. For more, see our weekly calendar released early every Monday morning and back to New York. For this week's deep dive, in keeping with the ongoing drama around China Evergrande Group, we have a replay from our October webinar where we are host a panel discussion of the latest developments around mechanisms for enforcing keepable deeds for offshore notes, implications for creditors, and other considerations. Hello and welcome for everyone who joined us on today's installment of the Rework webinar series. Today we'll discuss mechanisms for enforcing keep well deeds for offshore notes issued by stressed Chinese companies. This is obviously a very topical subject given the worldwide attention in China Evergrande Group. Joining us today are Fergus and Jacqueline from Kirkland Ellis and Jinchiana Chandis from Dohan Law Offices. Fergus Soren is a litigation partner at Kirkland Ellis in Hong Kong. He focuses on dispute resolution in complex multi-jurisdictional litigation and arbitration disputes with a particular focus on capital markets, M&A and shareholder disputes, banking and international trade and investment cases. Fergus advises on insolvency and restructuring issues, has acted on both creditor and debtor sides in high profile insolvencies in Hong Kong and elsewhere. Jacqueline Tan is a restructuring corporate partner at Kirkland Ellis in Hong Kong. She advises debtors and creditors in a range of liability management exercises and restructurings related to China credit. Her recent pre- uh, representations include China Singyes, Shandong Yuhuang, CMIG, Hua Chen Energy, Tsinghua Unigroup, and Evergrande. She also advises issuers and underwriters on transactions involving equity and debt securities offerings including high yield bond offerings and listings in Hong Kong and the US. Shandis Wan is a business partner of Dehung Shanghai Law Offices. She specializes in cross-border commercial arbitration and dispute resolution. She currently serves as a member of China Academy of Arbitration Law, member of Arbitration Commission of Shanghai Bar Association, mediator of Shanghai International Arbitration Center, and arbitrator of a Qingdao Arbitration Commission. Jun Chi Wang is a senior partner of Dohung Shanghai Law Offices. He specializes in commercial dispute resolution and was listed by ALB China 2020 Top 15 Litigators, Chambers Global 2021 Dispute Resolution List, recommended by the Legal 500 2021 Asia Pacific Region, and was invited to be a panelist of the Legal Affairs Committee of the China Construction Industry Association and a consultant expert for civil and administrative cases of the Supreme People's Procuratorate. Please note that if you would like to access this webinar again, a replay will be available on the Reorg webinars and podcast page later today for Reorg subscribers. We'll answer uh, audience questions at the end. So please feel free to submit your questions at any time using the Q&A widget located on the bottom of your screen. We're gonna start with a brief presentation from Jacqueline and Fergus from Kirkland Ellis, followed by slides presented by Chandice and Jinchi from Dehung. So Jacqueline and Fergus, over to you. Thanks, Shasha, for the introduction. Uh, before we dive into the details, of the enforcement options and mechanism for the bonds with the benefit of the Kipwa, which is today's key topic, we will say a few words about the typical structures of the US dollar bond issued by China Credit for those of you who are less familiar with this, and maybe also share uh, some of our general observations of the Kipwa's. 
especially given the limited uh, experience we have so far in the whole market. Um, this slide shows two typical structures uh, used by China Credit for offshore US dollar bond. As you can see on the left-hand side, the structure is often used by the so-called red chip companies. Often the issuer is uh, incorporated in one of these offshore jurisdictions, Cayman, BVI, Bermuda, and listed in Hong Kong. The bonds are typically guaranteed by the offshore subsidiaries of the LISCO, which are holding company of the onshore operating companies. Now, less often these days, the bonds may also be secured by shares of the offshore subsidiaries held by these subsidiary guarantors. Um, from bondholder perspective, as we see this play day in and day out, a lot of the cases Kirkland is involved. The downside, obviously, in this structure is the lack of direct onshore credit support by any of these operating companies onshore. To the extent um, there's no meaningful offshore assets held directly by, say, the issuer or any of the offshore subsidiary guarantors, the enforcement can be a, a painful process, to say the least. It can be time-consuming at times and also quite challenging. Uh, because uh, there, it involves, obviously, enforcement of, say, a judgment in another jurisdiction, you will need to bring it onshore, or um, recognition of provisional liquidators or liquidators' uh, powers onshore. The obvious reason, um, just historically, a word on why this structure came into place is obviously because of the difficulty in obtaining the required regulatory approvals for onshore guarantees of offshore indebtedness, as a lot of you know very well. Uh, despite the uh, subsequent relaxation in the regulatory environment in that regard, this structure is still often used by Hong Kong listed companies many of which are um, covered by today's topic, especially the real estate companies, including the offshore bonds issued by China Evergrande Group. Uh, the 3333 bonds, they have the, the, uh, the left-hand structure. Now, taking us to the right-hand structure in more recent times, we also see direct issuances by PRC companies. For example, in the cases Kirkland um, worked on, including the cases worked on by Fergus I&I, uh, Huachen, Reward, uh, just to name a few, they have direct issuances by the PRC company because of the relaxation of the recent uh, regulatory approval in this regard. Um, a variance of the right-hand structure is uh, bonds issued by an offshore subsidiary of the parent company, of the PRC parent company. And uh, this is when the keep well, today's subject, will come into play. Depending on the credit worthiness of the parent uh, and also the credit worthiness of any of the uh, offshore subsidiary, which hold, depends on what asset they hold offshore, they often are when there's the issuer is an offshore subsidiary of the parent. Uh, different credit enhancement provided either by the parent or provided by the offshore subsidiaries of the, the, the parent. So it depends on what um, offshore assets there are in the, in the group and which makes the bond uh, sellable, in, in other words. 
So the credit enhancement, as we marked here, uh, can take uh, various forms. Um, Alice, would you mind going to the second slide, please? They can take the form of a guarantee, uh, a keep well deed, um, and also in some rare cases, they can take in the form of a letter of credit. Obviously, letter of credit is the strongest uh, support you can have, as in recent cases we see, uh, for example, in uh, one of the cases we work on, uh, there's a letter of credit which can be drawn by the trustee under certain events of default. And usually the letter of credit is issued by an offshore bank. Sometimes you can also see a back-to-back -back, uh, letter of credit issued by an onshore bank. But this is by far the strongest you can get, depends on obviously the, the, the credit worthiness of the bank. That's usually not a question. Uh, with respect to the Keepwell, uh, I would just uh, say a few words. The, the keepwell is usually in the form of a keepwell deed, um, and sometimes it, it also has a combination of a keepwell deed and a deed of so-called equity purchase undertaking. They go hand in hand often enough. The deed of equity purchase undertaking is really an undertaking by the keepwell provider to purchase certain offshore assets equity interest to the extent certain conditions are met, uh, certain uh, purchase notice are issued by the trustee under certain circumstances within a period of time. The coupon provider or certain of its offshore subsidiary depends on the drafting of the, the, the deed of equity purchase undertaking. Uh, uh, the coupon provider will purchase certain equity interest and obviously the proceeds will be used to, to pay the bonds. Later on, when Fergus discussed his portion, uh, inevitably we will go into uh, which route of enforcement is better when, with respect to the Keepwell uh, bonds, whether we should enforce, for example, under the Keepwell deed, or whether we should enforce under the deed of equity purchase undertaking. It come up in um, uh, a lot of our cases, which uh, we will not be able to discuss in specific, but we will absolutely shed light on this um, topic, including PKU, Tsinghua, um, and uh, CFC, which are the couple cases the firms on this panel are involved in. Now, the origin of Kipwao is, is uh, one thing similar to the left-hand structure, is really meant to provide certain level of credit enhancement without really triggering the regulatory approval needed for a guarantee. So it's a quasi-guarantee. Um, there is still, despite the recent success of CFC case, significant uncertainty with respect to how Keepwell will play um, in the usual circumstances it came up, including the CFC, Tsinghua PKU, is the onshore bankruptcy proceeding context how different bankruptcy court will recognize the Keepwell and how different courts will, uh, will rule on the enforceability of the Keepwell, which is still uh, a, a bit uncertain. Um, maybe a general um, thought on, despite the face of the significant uncertainty with respect to, to the, uh, the, the Keepwell, 
one thing that the prevailing view on KeepWell is it's likely not to be deemed as guarantee. Uh, we can say, well, the bonds with the KeepWell not necessarily trading at a discount with respect to the to the uh, bonds which enjoy the guarantee from the same uh, certain times with the same entity. Uh, but in, in fact, I think that view is uh, uh, pretty certain with respect to the practitioner, with respect to the uh, administrators, and with respect to certain courts. Uh, in fact, actually, uh, going uh, a bit theoretic is in some Kipwell deeds, you will have the language more often than not, which says here the Kipwell is really not to be regarded as a guarantee. So, um, one more thought before I pass it on to our expert in this area, uh, Fergus, who has done many of our PRC uh, bonds uh, related enforcement actions, is especially facing the significant uncertainty. Uh, the, the strategies matter in terms of the options you take with respect to the enforcement actions, the timing matters, and the firm's depth of knowledge with respect to not just really the enforcement, but really with respect to the, the, the cap markets, uh, with respect to the bond issuance, and also the restructuring in general, uh, really bring certain things to the table, which uh, face the significant uncertainty is a very important aspect. Uh, and that is also why I think part of the important reason we are hosting this. Um, of course, thanks Riyadh for hosting this, and we are here to discuss uh, this very timely topic. Um, thank, thanks very much, Jacqueline. Uh, Alice, should we move on to enforcement processes? So I think, given the uncertainty around keep worlds, it's quite quite helpful to just go through the enforcement process and highlight for you uh, some of the more interesting aspects of uh, keep well deeds and their enforcement. So I think the starting point is that from an enforcement perspective, there is this temptation uh, and it's shared in the market and amongst practitioners to think about keepwells as basically the same as guarantees or 80% the value of a guarantee or pretty much a guarantee or, or similar kinds of thought processes. But there's some really pretty significant differences in terms of who can bring the claims what the underlying obligations are, what you can actually claim, and how you go about claiming. It's also, I think, particularly important to recognize that there's actually a lot of variation between the terms of Keepwell deeds. Guarantees, by contrast, for the most part, they're basically the same. They're, they're very similar. They're a standard kind of wording. If X doesn't pay, the guarantor will, and that's that's an end to it. But there is much more variation, at least in terms of the experience we have in reviewing keep wells, between keep wells, as to what the precise obligations are and the circumstances in which those obligations are triggered. So if we dive straight in, uh, with the basic question, uh, when you're enforcing, so one moment. With the basic question uh, at the outset, who is actually going to claim? 
Who's going to bring the claim? And this already gives rise to some challenges. So first of all, looking at the slides here, who's the obvious candidate? The obvious candidate from the guarantee perspective, from, from the way you enforce guarantees, is the trustee. They're the one who'd be enforcing if it was a guarantee. But, and we'll come on to obligations later, it's the primarily the issuer under the Keepwell deed who is being kept well, not the trustee. You contrast that again with the guarantee, which is direct to the trustee. It's, I will pay you, trustee, if the issuer doesn't. Under the Keepwell, it's the starting point is, I will pay you, the issuer. Now, depending on how exactly the Keepwell is drafted, this can give rise to an argument that the trustee isn't the proper claimant. And this point hasn't actually really been tested in court. It's kind of floating around there as uh, a, a kind of academic question at the moment. And I think I, I can put it best that it's a known unknown. And the answer to that question really depends a lot on the specific language of the Keepwell deed and also the governing law of the Keepwell deed. There may be some differences in the way uh, US law might treat this question to the way English law might treat this question. That aside, um, in going back to the guarantee thought process in a sense, if you're going to be enforcing through the trustee, you've got to reach the relevant thresholds typically uh, to instruct the trustee. Typically, that's going to be 25% of the holders of principal outstanding on the bonds, plus you've got to indemnify the trustee, the, the usual process. So the second, the second possible claimant here is the issuer. And you have no proper, proper claimant problems there as such, but very obvious point, issuers don't tend to sue their parent companies, don't tend, tend to sue affiliates uh, within their group. So in order to pursue that route, you've got to take control of the issuer. And that typically is going to be through a liquidation process. So you, uh, you claim uh, under the, the trust deed or the indenture for the sums outstanding against the issuer. You then liquidate the issuer. You put in a liquidator. And then you persuade that liquidator to bring the claim and you put in all the financing around that. And then the liquidator actually brings the claim. Now, this we've seen from past experience is doable. It's very viable, but it's potentially quite time consuming. And it, it to be honest, can be quite expensive. The third possible candidate for claimant uh, is the note holders. Typically, though, with uh, most trust deeds, most indentures, uh, there's pretty, pretty comprehensive no action clauses, which prohibit the note holder claiming directly. And that prohibits direct claims under the trust deed or the indenture. Um, but it also, by extension, would, would likely uh, prohibit claims under the under security documents, including the keepwells. 
and the note holders face the same kind of arguments, the same species of argument about whether they're the proper claimant as, uh, as a trustee would. So to conclude on the first question, who, who's your claimant going to be? It's going to be the trustee or the issuer, and it really depends on the circumstances of the case. But it almost certainly won't be the note holders. So moving on to the keep well providers obligations. These vary, but typically the principal ones are some form of an undertaking from the provider to maintain the issuer's value. And in terms of assessing whether that value has been maintained, you have more or less complicated calculation methodologies. Those methodologies themselves can give rise to, to disputes and questions, but typically there will be some kind of framework within the keep well for assessing value. And the second core obligation, typical obligation, is to provide adequate funding to the subsidiary to fulfill its payment obligations. And it's this undertaking that gives the impression that the keep well deed is akin to a guarantee. So Alice, could we move to the next slide, please? Thanks very much. The third question, and this is where it gets legally a bit more interesting, is what what can you actually claim? What is your claim? The first point, and this is absolutely critical to, to analysing all of these, these keep well claims. Your claim is a damages claim. It's not a debt claim. It's not like a claim under a guarantee. So what does this mean? Basically, with a damages claim, you have to actually prove what loss the claimant and we'll come back to this point, the claimant suffered as a consequence of the breach of the keep well. In other words, you're, you're not automatically entitled to claim the amount outstanding under the, under the bonds like you would be with a guarantee. So generally speaking, with a damages claim, the defendant has to pay a sum that places the claimant in the position it would have been if the contract had been performed. And this is where the identity of the claimant potentially matters quite a lot. If the claimant is the trustee, it's pretty clear that the starting point is in terms of how, how much you have lost, how much the trustee has lost, is the amount outstanding under the notes. The point there is, if the issuer had been kept well, if the keep well provider had put the issuer in funds it needed to satisfy its obligations, the issuer would have paid the sums due on the bond. And that's, that's a fairly straightforward analysis. But if the claimant is the issuer, the quantification of the claim might actually be different. So if you imagine a situation in which you have an issuer with multiple tranches of bonds, and it's the same issuer, so it's not, um, it's not an SPV with a single tranche, it's, it's a single issuer with several tranches of bonds. 
you might make the argument that the only way the issuer could pay one tranche of bonds uh, in full is if it's actually put in funds to pay all the tranches of the outstanding bonds. Otherwise, for example, it might end up preferring one creditor or another, uh, one creditor over other particular creditors. And that, I think, is an area that potentially has uh, a lot of room for development in the assessment of damages. And that's a key, a key nuance of Keepwell deeds in the context of who the, who the claiming party is. Now, moving on to the final point, which is how are you going to actually claim? So first, and I think most obviously, you're going to bring court proceedings, uh, damages claim in court. The question here is really enforceability. And that, to a large degree, goes to where are you actually going to bring the claim? Keepwells uh, historically have had different different sorts of jurisdiction clauses. Sometimes they'll be exclusive New York, sometimes non-exclusive, sometimes exclusive Hong Kong, sometimes non-exclusive Hong Kong. I think a point to highlight is that if the Keepwell contains an exclusive Hong Kong jurisdiction clause, then at least in theory, you'll be any judgment will be enforceable in the mainland. It should be recognized. There's in practice a lot of question about whether it will be. And the precedent of the CFC case uh, is, is not necessarily one to be relied on, we think anyway. Um, I expect Mr. Wang will have uh, more insights on that, though, and so I'll, I'll defer to him on that. Um, on the other hand, if you were claiming uh, in New York court and against assets, uh, against a PRC entity, you're going to have enormous difficulty enforcing that judgment onshore. That's in practice likely to be a judgment that you're only going to have confidence in enforcing offshore. The second option is you submit a claim. Uh, in the Keepwell Providers bankruptcy or liquidation proceedings. But the thing is there that given your claim under the Keepwell is going to be unliquidated, if you go to the administrator or the liquidator with your claim, they may well reject it on the basis that it's unquantified and uh, you know they might say it's speculative or, or what have you. There's the value in going to get a judgment because at that point, the value of your claim is crystallized by the judgment and it's much more difficult for a liquidator or an administrator to refuse to recognize the full value of your claim. The third option um, is you can commence your own insolvency proceedings. Uh, but Typically, that's going to be pretty challenging with an unliquidated uh, claim. And before you go down that route, you would want to obtain a judgment on your claim. Now, um, Jackie mentioned in, in her talk um, or her opening 
the role of uh, deed of equity interest purchase undertaking. And as Jackie mentioned, a lot of keep wells either either combine an obligation to purchase the equity of subsidiaries of the issuer within the keep well deed. Uh, in other forms of keep wells, the obligation to purchase equity is in a separate document, an, an equity interest purchase agreement. But either way, the, the purpose of that agreement is to uh, create a mechanism by which the Keepwell provider is obtaining some benefit for the payment that it is making to the issuer, notionally. In terms of enforcement of um, separate EPUs, uh, the considerations and the analysis is, is very similar, if not the same, to the considerations and analysis of the of enforcement of keep well deeds proper. With that, um, I will pass over to um, to uh, Shandis and uh, Junki for their uh, for their input. Okay, thank you. Hello, everyone. I'm Junqi, and the sitting next to me is my colleague Chandis. Glad to share my view regarding enforcement mechanism of QA data. While Jacqueline and Fergus have talked about the offshore structure of QA, I will mainly talk about from the mainland perspective about enforceability of QA data in mainland China, about the judicial test of QA data in mainland China, two representative cases in 2020 is PUFG and CEFC. PUFG is the case where the bankruptcy administrator of Peking University Fund Group Limited refused to recognize the bonds made and the keyword deed, which are valued at around US dollar 1.7 billion. Why a few months later, on October 30, 2020, Shanghai Financial Court recognized and enforced a Hong Kong default judgment. Relating to a breach of a keyboard deed, the CEFC case is the first one where offshore judgment related to keyboard deed gets recognized and enforced in mainland China. It was awarded. Shanghai Financial Court 2020 term model cases and Shanghai Supreme People's Court model foreign related financial dispute. The two cases demonstrate two different rules offshore bondholders could pursue where the Chinese parent itself encounter liquidation crisis or bankruptcy or restructuring problems. One is to file a claim within the mainland bankruptcy or restructuring process. If the bankruptcy administrator denies the claim, the bondholders has right to sue before PRC bankruptcy court, which usually has exclusive jurisdiction over all bankruptcy related claims. 
refer to the left area on the side. And the other one is under the jurisdiction by cause of arbitrary tribunal in accordance with the terms of the tribunal date and then apply for recognition and enforcement in the mainland. Look at the right arrow on the slide. Alice, next page, please. Okay, thank you. And the CEFC case before Shanghai Financial Court last year is a benchmark case in the second route. Our team represents the bondholder in the CEFC case. Its affirmative ruling also made it a welcomed decision enhancing the confidence of bondholders in relying on keyboard dates as a form of credit enhancement. However, while this case has shed light on the enforceability of keyboard dates structure in the mainland, we need to, however, realize its limitations. Firstly, the prerequisites of initiating the CEFC case is ob obtaining a valued offshore judgment. Secondly, whether offshore bondholders could claim for repayment from the Chinese parent and keep your structure depends on the provision of keep your date and its salary agreements. Most keep your dates provide that Chinese parents are to provide liquidity of the issuer instead of a guarantor bearing straight repayment of obligations. Thirdly, it is worth noting this case is a special proceeding under PRC law, that is, recognition and enforcement of offshore judgment. As provided in the judgment, the Shanghai Financial Court did not go into the substantive issue of day, but only conducts procedural scrutiny based on the mainland Hong Kong bilateral agreement. Therefore, we are still expecting substantive judgment related to Kibuya date in the upcoming future. In the CEFC case, the defendant holds the view that a Kibuya date should be categorized as a guarantee under PRC law. The defendant then argues that the Hong Kong judgment has violated mainland guarantee law and foreign exchange administrative regulations. The Shanghai Financial Court reject this argument. The court held that the Kibuya date in question was not governed by PRC law. And thus, the validity of the Kibuya date and the PRC law was not a relevant consideration. The court further rules that the public interest of refusing to recognize and enforce the judgment should be strictly interpreted, which usually only included cases where the result of recognizing and enforcing the judgment of Hong Kong was directly contrary to the public interest of the mainland. 
since China's foreign exchange and administrative rules have been undergoing updates, recognition and enforcement of the judgment will not against the PRC public interests. Okay, next page, Alice. Okay, to better understand the underlying rational why Chinese court would affirm the recognition and enforcement application of Cypriot deed, we could read the official news released by Shanghai Financial Court on 22 July 2021, just a couple of months earlier, which says the ruling is to stabilize and raise bond ratings by international rating firms, decrease the profit margins of offshore bond by Chinese companies, helpful for international business environment. Said so, we expect that PRC courts would have more leeway to recognize foreign judgments relating to the enforcement of Cuban deeds governed by a foreign law. This intern would relate to bondholders or trustees' choice during liquidation or restructuring proceeding involving Cuban deed, which should go. However, despite of the above, we should still bear in mind. Keep well is a detour avoiding safe registration without judicial compulsory enforcement measures. Perfection of finances rights will face its inherent compliance issue when a keep well deed is called. So thank you so much for my part. Thank you. Thank you so much, everyone, for the presentation. That was great. Um, for those who join us slightly later, you are watching the latest um, inst installment of a reorg webinar series. Today, we are hosting speakers from Kirkland Ellis and Dilheng uh, Shanghai Law Offices. We're talking about the enforcement mechanisms for keep well notes, very topical given the attention on um, China Evergrande. So um, Fergus and Jacqueline, you know, first question to you. I Where am I had as a journalist? I have to ask about Evergrande. Um, where does Evergrande stand in the context of a keep wall enforcement? Uh, Shasha, thanks for the question. Um, I think uh, when I put my lawyer hat on, we can't really uh, specific comment um, uh, on the case for uh, for Keepwell, uh, specifically as relating to Evergrande, because we are representing the the ad hoc committee on Key, uh, uh, Evergrande as widely reported. Um, just. Um, Maybe generally in terms of, we, we are happy to answer any questions with respect to the keyboard in general, to the extent um, we can share any view, we are happy to, Shasha. 
Okay, thank you so much. Um, for those of you who are interested in asking questions, you could type them in the Q&A widget at the bottom of your screen. Um, we have a question coming in from the audience. What if the trustee is the appropriate uh, claimant, but less than 25% note holders agree or resolve to instruct the trustee to take action to claim? Can a note holder is that make the claim? Um, that's a great question. Um, Jacqueline or Fergus, do you want to take it? Uh, sure. It, it really depends. I think, uh, Fergus, feel free to jump mm -hmm. in. It really depends, as we, uh, Fergus, dis discussed this point more extensively than I did in his presentation part. It really depends on uh, the drafting of the particular keyboard deed and also the, the wording of the, the, the equity purchase undertaking. And it's hard to generalize. And to the extent, usually under UK law um, on this point, probably more so, but I think in New York law, pretty much also too on this point is you probably need to act through the, the, the trustee, but obviously it can generalize. It really depends on the language of the particular uh, keyboard deed and, and who is the beneficiary. That's the topic uh, co uh, Fergus covered in his part. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't need, I absolutely endorse what Jackie has said, uh, and I think it, it's it's for that specific reason that that you have these threshold requirements as a matter of policy to prevent individual bondholders from going and bringing claims um, sporadically or or individually, causing causing a lot of trouble essentially to the to the bond issuer, and you know in in those circumstances where you have you have less than 25 percent the the playbook really is you've got to you've got to find other bondholders and within a, a large body of bondholders there's likely to be other other like-minded people and it's about making connections with those people and and working together yeah the purpose of this is really preventing you know the almost not not saying any bondholder would do this lightly is really preventing a small portion of bondholders interrupting the whole process i think one word maybe i'll put my cam harkett's hat on is is um within some deed of indemnity some indenture they will say hey if the trustee failed to act within a reasonable period of time then um they, we could look at those carvouts see if you know to the extent you know, in, instruct them properly and, and whatnot, and whether there's any um, hook there. But it really depends on the, the terms of the indenture and the keyboard deed. Okay. Thank you, Fergus and Jacqueline. Uh, moving sure. on to to the onshore aspect, uh, Shandis, this is a question for you. You know, we're, we, with Evergrande, certainly the, the keep wall is coming under the spotlight again, but the keep wall notes um, had come up during previous cases, including PKU founder, Tsinghua Unigroup, and earlier, you know, CEFC Shanghai. Why have the keep wall structure traditionally been used in the China market? Um, are there any reason, are, are those reasons still valid today, or could Chinese companies adopt a more traditional and creditor-friendly guarantee structure going forward for new debt issuances? Thank you, Shasha. So we will take this question. So 
Okay, well, this structure actually they emerged in uh, mainland China uh, between 2012 to 2013 and was used widely before uh, we call the state administration of foreign exchange uh, abbreviated as SAFE became more willing to allow onshore companies to provide guarantees on their offshore subsidiaries debt. Therefore, okay, well, these are traditionally being used um, by Chinese parent companies seeking to avoid the regulatory restrictions in relation to um, granting the PRC guarantees. Um, in China, uh, we call one uh, a Chinese parent company, they uh, provide guarantee to their after subsidiary, we call in Chinese, uh, which means um, foreign subsidiary have uh, has its Chinese parent company to offer a guarantee uh, from onshore uh, to provide a credit for their offshore uh, financings. Um, so uh, if a company in China wants to provide guarantee to its offshore subsidiaries for its financing, it really needs to uh, file for safe registration within 15 working days uh, from its execution. However, Given that the registration requirement is designed in part to control capital outflow, successful registration is not always guaranteed. The practical consequence of non-registration of a guarantee is that the Chinese parent will not be allowed to remit funds outside of China if uh, the guarantee is called. So, um, well, did is a structure, uh, it's a special mechanism designed. Uh, we also think it might be a detour uh, for the safe registration. Um, nevertheless, uh, recently, um, um, with the emerging of the PKU cases, the uh, EFEC cases, etc., um, the market has found out that there might be some uncertainties uh, regarding the enforceability of KWL deeds. So alternative creditor-friendly guaranteed structures are also being considered uh, by some offshore financiers nowadays. Um, now, for example, uh, bank guarantee, uh, all we could provide um, as uh, the Chinese uh, parent co for security over catchers, or security over uh, its offshore assets, for example, fixed and floating charges of a variety of asset classes such as cash, securities accounts, overseas receivables, and insurance proceeds. Uh, this could also be considered. Excellent. Thank you so much, Shandis. Um, we have a question come, uh, coming from the audience. What are some of the problems or risks enforcing through the trustee? Uh, Fergus, do you want to take that one? Or Jacqueline? Uh, Fergus, I think you're on mute. <laughs> Quite right, Shasha. Amateur, <laughs> amateur hour here. Uh, <laughs> happy to take it. Pro problems enforcing through the trustee, typically, and I'm not sure whether to call them problems, challenges, it's administrative, so you've got to you've you've got to get uh, you've got to get your threshold. So you've got to get your twenty five percent. Typically, you've got to get those twenty five percent of holders to agree on the course of action that that you want to instruct the trustee to take. You've got to negotiate with the the trustee on that action, and and that's certainly somewhere where uh, you know you you need lawyers who have established relationships. Uh, like us with with all of the the trustees you then need to uh, negotiate the deed of indemnity so that's the indemnity to the trustee for following your group's uh, instructions 
And then typically the trustee is going to uh, ask you to fortify that deed of indemnity with, with cash or other collateral. You've got to provide all of that. Now, that's what I describe as the administrative challenges of going through a trustee. And that can be time consuming and it, it can be a bit costly, but that's that's the route that you, you've got to take. Uh, I don't... I don't think there are there are risks as such in commencing through the trustee. Your typically your risks in these scenarios are associated with not enforcing through the trustee, with going it alone, because that's where you are typically going to get standing problems. People, uh, issuers or guarantors or whoever, questioning your right to commence those proceedings. Great, thank you so much. Um, next question also coming from the audience. In practice, how do you enforce keep well, which is governed by New York law? Do you need to first get a judgment in New York court? That's great. Uh, Fergus or Jacqueline, is, this is offshore. Um, yeah, but maybe I'll, I'll start on that one. So you've got to distinguish between a keep well deed, which is governed by New York law, point one, and the jurisdiction in which you have to bring the claim. So it's quite common actually for uh, a keep well or an indenture or whatever to be governed by New York law, but to be subject to the exclusive jurisdiction of a different court, for example, Hong Kong. In that scenario, it, the, the, the contract is governed by New York law, but there's no problem at all enforcing it, oh, sorry, um, uh, uh, bringing proceedings in Hong Kong. In fact, the contract requires you to do that. Uh, similarly, if you have a non-exclusive jurisdiction clause, then you can go and enforce it subject to some questions about forum convenience. You can go and enforce it in whichever court you want to. Um, the issue which I suspect the, the questioner is really getting at is, what if you have a New York law governed keep well and exclusive New York jurisdiction? In that scenario, I, I think quite potentially you've, you've got problems if you are looking to enforce that judgment in, in mainland China. And that, that kind of scenario, to me, you would be looking at alternative options around liquidation proceedings. Um, and you would want to avoid, uh, the, the New, avoid the New York court, avoid having to obtain a New York judgment because there's going to be questions about its enforceability. Given the keep well come up a lot, maybe Chandis and, and Jinchi, yeah. you can jump in to the extent you have more point uh, on this point. I think given the context so far, a lot of these like CFC, Tsinghua, PKU, we all worked on, they all came up in the context of a PRC restructuring proceeding, right? So it's really talking about uh, if you want you you actually need to, right? First step of Kiwa is not to throw in the administrator's face because that's, uh, if history tells that anything, it's not going to be fair very well, right, in that context. So you need to obtain a judgment somewhere. So the so the equation and then factors to be considered is what type of judgment, to the extent you have any choice under the contract, to the extent mm -hmm. there's non-exclusive jurisdiction, what is the best 
a way to to uh, to uh, make the odds in your favor when you bring it to the um, bankruptcy court uh, in onshore and uh, to to uh, increase the possibility of that being recognized. Yeah. Okay. And the, uh, just uh, just supplementing that, um, Jackie made a really good point on that. That even if even if your judgment is not formally enforceable in a jurisdiction, it may still have some uh, persuasive value with the the administrator of of the the estate or the liquidator of the the estate. Yeah. So the travel route in CFC case is a UK law underlying UK law, where that probably doesn't matter much. Depends on UK, New York. Given all these cases are UK law governed. And in the CFC case, the exclusive Hong Kong jurisdiction, Chandis, uh, and, and I exchanged notes on that, right? So that is uh, one of the more or less more travel route. So that is uh, maybe you, you will have a fair game or, or fairer game yep. uh, uh, if, you, if you travel through that route. Um, thank you so much. The next one, Shandice, the next question is for you, also coming from the audience. Could you elaborate on which PRC court has jurisdiction over ruling of an English law contract? And how does Gibbs rule apply if another PRC court denies the claim? Shandice. Uh, are you? Shandice, I think you're on mute. If you could unmute yourself. Shedis, I think you're still on mute. If you could uh, unmute yourself. All right, looks like we have a little bit of uh, technical problems on the part of uh, Doha. And we'll say, Shedis, it's okay. We'll, um, I think we're having trouble hearing you, Shedis. Yes. Uh, oh, okay. Now we can hear you. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, okay. So um, to answer the audience question, uh, uh, firstly, is the court has jurisdiction over ruling of an English law contract. Um, English law contract means that the contract, the governing law of the contract is English law, but it does not provide for the jurisdiction. Uh, regarding jurisdiction, actually, uh, China, mainland China jurisdiction is uh, welcome if you choosing the governing law to be a foreign country. As long as a contract has uh, foreign elements, which we say, for example, the party is foreign related or the matter is foreign related, you have the, uh, the choice to choose a foreign law. And regarding the jurisdiction, if it's a foreign related uh, matter, your related jurisdiction, we would recommend if you choose um, uh, the PRC court uh, with uh, intermediate level or above, because uh, not every um, uh, not every district court we see uh, the basic um, the basic level uh, district court has the right uh, to rule on foreign related cases. Uh, so this is uh, our answer to the first question. And the other one uh, is about the Gibbs rule. Uh, could we, uh, could, uh, we need to understand what uh, the Gibbs rule stand for? Oh. Chasha, do, 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 do you want me to? Yes, go ahead, Fergus. Yeah. So the, the Gibbs rule 
the Gibbs rule is to the effect that, um, say, an English law govern contract can only be discharged by an English judgment. So it's. I, I think the question is getting at um, what would happen if the PRC court uh, denied the enforceability of a keepwell deed that was governed by English law. Um, what would be the effect of that? Okay, I see. So that means uh, the contract chose the English law to be the governing law. And if the PRC court denies it, what would be uh, the consequence? Yeah. In, okay. And I think I think the, the question probably is, what would be the consequence in mainland China of that denial? Okay, okay. Is, I that, is, is that the question, Shasha? I think, yes, is that I the think second so. part of the question? I, I okay. think that's what the second part meant, yeah. What would the consequence mean um, in PRC court? Okay, thank you. Uh, for I, I assume it's in the context of the PRC proceeding yeah. it's asking, right? If, for yeah. example, yeah, it's in the context of PRC proceeding, Chandis, what will happen in that case? Right. Uh, regarding the enforcement proceeding of the mainland of the PRC, actually, first we need to uh, consider the offshore judgment. It's a court judgment or it's a official tribunal's award. This is a two types of uh, a foreign, uh, foreign, uh, foreign judicial um, decisions. So, uh, in the first route, if it's a foreign arbitral tribunal made an award based on English law. Because China, uh, PRC, uh, mainland China, is a member to the New York Convention. So as long as the, the, uh, as long as, uh, the sovereignty of the actual award is made also at the place of uh, the New York Convention, it can be enforced in mainland as well. So the other one is if the English law governed contract uh, um, get a judgment uh, from from offshore, then we need to say whether the mainland has bilateral agreement uh, for enforcement of uh, civil and commercial judgments in the PRC. Uh, for Hong Kong, because the mainland and Hong Kong has the arrangement of enforcement. Uh, but if, uh, for example, for US, uh, the uh, United States of America, because right now there has not been bilateral agreement between PRC and the US, neither there's a reciprocal uh, enforcement measures, uh, especially established. So there are still some uncertainties whether US judgment could be enforced in the mainland. Thank you so much. Um, I, I, I've got more questions from the audience, but unfortunately, we only have time for one last question. I uh, want to be cognizant of the time limit here. Um, those who are whose questions don't get answered during the live session, please be sure to email them to questions at reorg.com. So last question, um, the, uh, the share pledge option in slide one, at the Fergus, I think that's your, uh, or Jacqueline, that's your side. How can bondholders qualify as a creditor onshore in PRC with this option? It seems very difficult thereby reducing the value of the share pledge. Um, either Jacqueline or Shandice, you, do you wanna give a um, quick answer to, to that question? Jacqueline, I think you're on mute. Yeah, I'm a our number two. And uh, Shasha, I would just um, 
you know, it, it really depends on what entities here is really in the PRC uh, bankruptcy proceeding. Chandas, feel free to, to chime in. Here, the offshore pledges and everything, it's really the, the pledgeor are the subsidiary guarantors, which are offshore, right? So the, so the companies, the shares which are being pledged are also offshore subsidiaries. They don't have, the, uh, depends on which entities is really in the bankruptcy proceeding. Um, um, so it depends, it usually in this structure, the left-hand side, I think Shasha, what the question is referring to, in this structure is a typical real estate structure like the 3333 structure. So what is going through onshore proceeding uh, it should be in this concept, if it, we are talking about PRC bankruptcy proceeding, would be the optical, which is the, the, the bottom uh, of, of this um, uh, pie, uh, of this um, chart. So it, I think the question needs to differentiate between uh, who are the pledger, who are the pledgee, what are the shares being pledged. These are actually the parent level of these operating companies. So they are not directly, I assume, wouldn't be unless it's an offshore bankruptcy proceeding uh, uh, be dealt with in the context of a PRC bankruptcy proceeding, if the question is asked as to that. To the extent the question uh, asker knows me or Fergus, feel free to uh, give us a call and happy to discuss directly. I know a lot of our clients are on the call, also Dilhan's clients are on the call. Feel free to have a chat on a course and uh, happy to, to talk. Further. Excellent. Um, Shandice, do you have anything quick to add to that um, question? Yeah, thank you, Shasha. Actually, uh, we endorse what Jacqueline has answered. Uh, regarding the PRC bankruptcy proceeding and the offshore bankruptcy proceeding, actually, uh, we will say they are separate. Uh, they are separate, at least for now. Uh, recently, the PRC bankruptcy proceeding, there, uh, there is an uh, arrangement between PRC and Hong Kong regarding the uh, mutual recognition of bankruptcy proceeding. Uh, but for other jurisdictions, uh, we haven't seen this uh, up to date. Thank you so yeah. much, Shandice. Yes, that's all the uh, questions we have time for today. As a reminder, Reorg is a global provider of credit intelligence data analytics for law firms, investors, advisors. If you're already a Reorg subscriber, please send any further questions you have on this or other topics to customer success at reorg.com. Remember, a replay with slides will be available on the webinars and podcast page within 24 hours. A big thank you to everyone and our excellent panelists who join us today, as well as uh, um, um, our panelists uh, from Kirkland, Darhung, and everyone from the audience. Thank you and have a great day. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Reorg. Thank you. Thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the reorg.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend. See you next Friday.